But all right. So over the next uh, you know 55 minutes, hour or so, uh, I want to present really uh, what we've called and we've sort of coined this term from a variety of, of places to try to uh, capture how we see the whole Bible fitting together. Really, that's what uh, we're looking at here is how the parts fit with the whole. And we've called it uh, progressive uh, covenantalism, and we'll describe what that view is. But uh, let me just introduce uh, the subject by saying that all, all Christians, I mean, those who uh, are Orthodox and believe Scripture, uh, agree that covenant is fundamental uh, to the Bible story. At its heart, right, covenants speak of God's relationship to us and creation. I am your God, uh, you are my people. All Christians also agree that uh, uh, God's plan is progressive and that it unfolds and that uh, the fulfillment of God's plan has ultimately come uh, in Christ, right? So there's all agreement on those issues. Uh, every Christian for, um, agrees in some form of redemptive epochs, dispensations. Uh, dispensations is simply a biblical term, and there is some kind of unfolding of that plan over time, and that's there's some kind of change or discontinuity or fulfillment that takes place uh, uh, in the coming of Christ and so on. However, uh, Christians uh, differ on the exact relationship of, of the covenants and how the covenants unfold. It's not a new debate. The early church uh, debated this. The Judaizers, you think of Acts 15, you think of the wrestling with old to new covenant shifts, what has now happened in Christ, circumcision, all of those issues are there in the New Testament. Uh, the larger question of Jew, Gentile, and so on. And today, the same issues uh, face us. There's ongoing debates as to the newness of the new covenant, what exactly is that? Uh, how the law, in terms of say the Ten Commandments or the Old Covenant applies, even the whole Old Testament applies to us today. Uh, inaugurated eschatology is part of this debate. Uh, Israel church relationships, the role in particularly what we're looking at here is all of these things, but uh, the role of ethnic national Israel in, in God's plan. So I'm going to present what we'll call progressive covenantalism, and then you'll hear progressive dispensationalism. So there's four sort of steps with sub-steps uh, here uh, in terms of your outline. First, just want to describe what the overall view is, and that's the first point on your page one of your handout. And then uh, secondly, just lay out very quickly uh, some hermeneutical assumptions, uh, some issues of method, uh, lay my cards out in the table and say this is how I'm approaching putting the Bible together. And then because we're calling this progressive covenantalism to walk briefly through how we see the Bible fitting together through the progression of the covenants, and then speaking about the nature of fulfillment as you come into the New Testament. Right? So the first overall is to look just what is this view called progressive covenantalism? Well, what we're arguing is that Scripture presents a plurality of covenants that progressively reveal our triune God's one plan for his one people, which reaches their fulfillment, which reaches this the covenants and the plan reaches its fulfillment, its goal, its end, its terminus ultimately in Christ and the entire 
new covenant age, the dawning of the new creation. Each biblical covenant contributes to the overall unified plan to comprehend the whole counsel of God. Each covenant must be understood in its own redemptive historical context, its location, what preceded it, what follows, and then putting those pieces together, we then understand uh, how God's plan has unfolded to us. Through the progression of the covenants, we come to know God's plan. We know how, we know not only what the promises are, but how they are brought to fulfillment, uh, how we are to live now where we are in redemptive history in light of all of what has transpired. In emphasizing or accenting the covenants, we are arguing that the covenants are more than a unifying theme. It's not just, they're not just a theme of scripture. Uh, we're arguing, at least this is our contention, that the covenants are the Bible's own structures, right? Uh, it's the backbone uh, to the Bible's entire storyline. It's what drives the entire plan. It's how God has chosen to make himself known to us. And unlike, say, covenant theology, we're not discussing that so much today, which tends to divide things up to covenant of works, covenant of grace. Uh, there may be some merit in that and some truths in all of that, yet we don't do that. Rather, we talk about God's one plan unfolding through a plurality of covenants, beginning first in creation in Adam, Culminating in Christ, the creation covenant then lays the foundation to all that comes in terms of all the covenants that uh, brings fulfillment in Christ. So God's plan moves from, seems basic, from creation to new creation, <laughs> from Adam to consummation in Christ, and it's unpacked through the covenants. Now concerning the Israel-Church relationship is where... We'll have some of the differences, I think, with uh, progressive dispensationalism. We argue at least two points. Uh, first, God has one people. There's, I think, agreement there. Yet uh, there is, we would say, this is really more over against um, some of the covenant theology. There is, there is a redemptive historical distinction between Israel and the church uh, tied to their respective covenants. The church is really new. Uh, it's new in a redemptive historical sense, not... Um, yeah, well, just new in a redemptive historical sense. Uh, the church is the community of the new covenant. And we must think of the church, a second point, we'll use this term Christologically. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, as we work through the covenants, they come to fulfillment in Christ. So we must see the church as not directly the new Israel or her replacement in that sense, right? So I'm trying to avoid any notion of this sort of replacement theology and these get these words get thrown around uh, quite a bit. No, the church isn't just the replacement of Israel, rather in Christ. Uh, the church is God's new creation. It's comprised of believing Jews, Gentiles. Why? Because Jesus is last Adam, true Israel, great Davidic king, the faithful seed of Abraham who inherits all of the promises, who wins all of our inheritance and salvation and work through his person and his work. So in union with Christ, and I mean by union, covenantal union, the church is God's new covenant community. It's in continuity with God's people of all ages. There's always been his people through the ages, but it's different from Israel in its nature and structure. So the church is... I don't know how else to say it, other, other than theologically significant. Right? It's covenantally significant. It's the people of the new covenant. It's the people of the new creation that continues forever as 
those of an international community believing Jews, Gentiles together, receiving the same promise, the same inheritance, uh, and uh, so on. So this view, way of viewing Israel to the fulfillment in Christ, to the church, I think differs from aspects of dispensational theology. Uh, Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel and Adam and those who have preceded him. We'll tie this to some typological structures so that all of God's promises are fulfilled in him and to his people. And the people then are those of believing Jew and Gentile together, including the inheritance that's tied to the promises to Abraham, which are all rooted back in creation. Right. So we're going to take all of the land, promise, and so on, back ultimately to creation itself. Right? Now, that's sort of the overall view, sort of saying, what are we trying to do here? Obviously, there's similarities in all these views that we look at, yet there are some differences, and some of the hermeneutical assumptions that we're going to talk about here for hermeneutical assumptions, uh, we have a lot in common, yet uh, there's also some differences as well. So many of these things that I'm going to say, uh, in terms of what assumptions I'm bringing to the table, in some sense are obvious. We don't have to spend much time on them, yet it's important to be very, very much aware of how we're approaching the task before us, right? So Christian theology is the attempt to bring every thought captive to Christ, to put the whole counsel of God, the whole canon together, right? How do we exegete biblical texts? How do we draw theological conclusions? How do we know that our theological proposals, so progressive covenantalism and progressive dispensationalism are theological proposals? Uh, How do we know that they are biblically warranted? This question isn't new. People have wrestled with this. Uh, Hermeneutical theological method, theological interpretation of scripture is not easy, yet it is important to sort of say this is where I'm coming from. Right. So four points and then some sub points under them. Uh, first, this should be what we all agree on, hopefully. Uh, how do we interpret scripture? Well, first, according to its own claim to be God's word written through human authors. It's fully authoritative, sola scriptura, so on. Uh, two entailments, though, I see from this. Uh, first, I expect and I come to scripture expecting an overall unity and coherence. Right. Despite its diversity, and as applied to the covenants, how this will work itself out is that I assume that uh, the covenants are not independent, right? They're interdependent. They're not isolated. They unfold one plan centered in, ultimately, its culmination in Christ. Secondly, an entailment of this is that Scripture comes to us through human authors so that we discover God's intent. If we ask about what is God intending by his revelation, his promises, and so on. Well, we discover that through the authors, right? Uh, but we discover them ultimately at, in terms of the entire canon. We have multiple authors, right? Multiple authors that are written to us over time. So we need ultimately a canonical reading. We can talk about fuller sense, sense is plenier, but that's loaded with words. But what I mean by it, I would follow uh, Beale here, Greg Beale. The Old Testament authors do not exhaustively understand everything of what they're saying. They're saying things. God is speaking through them, all the implications, possible applications. Yet, as God gives more revelation through later authors, particularly in the Old Testament, uh, let alone the New Testament, later authors, we discover God's intent, how the part fits with the whole. So, major assumption here, I don't think this is problematic, but uh, some on the dispensational side do, right? I would say the New Testament has priority. Now, what do I mean by priority? 
Well, we need a whole canon reading, but eventually the canon has come to closure. So the Old Testament isn't just open-ended, right? We have to see how the Old fits with the New. The New gives us how it is being brought to fulfillment. In terms of the Old, the New doesn't contravene the integrity of the earlier text, yet the text must be understood in terms of multiple authors, intertextual, how later authors pick up earlier authors within the Old Testament as well as then the New. So we are interested in authorial intent, human author intent, but we come to understand where it's all going by putting text together with text, intertextual development, uh, and ultimately the canon as a whole. Right? A second uh, assumption here is the progress of Revelation. We all agree on this. But uh, the hermeneutical implication is that we interpret Scripture by tracing out God's unfolding plan step by step. The discipline today that we often speak of this is the discipline of biblical theology. Right? So biblical theology is an exegetical theological discipline that attempts to grasp how the whole counsel of God fits through its redemptive historical unfolding, beginning in creation and ultimately to the new creation. Our task of reading Scripture then is on what we like to say the Bible's own terms, right? How does the Bible present these things? How is it unfolded? How is it later being picked up? Our contention is we'll never get at how the plan unfolds unless you take seriously the progression of the covenants and see how they are unfolding step by step by step. Third, uh, we, I develop here or talk about uh, from Richard Lintz and others that because Scripture is God's Word, it comes to us over time, we must read it in terms of context. It sounds basic, but there's three contexts at least. Scripture's plan unfolds over time. It tells us how the parts fit with the whole. So we have to look at, obviously, immediate context. That's any text that we look at. We do grammatical, historical, literary exegesis of those texts, determining what authors are saying. Yet we also must look at what preceded it. No text. This is what I mean by epochal horizon. Texts don't come to us in a vacuum. They are embedded in a larger context that's come before them. Sounds obvious. But we need to see the intertextual uh, links between earlier, later revelation, how promises are being unpacked, how various patterns are being unpacked. We'll tie this to typology. There's God-given patterns between earlier and later events and persons and institutions that later authors pick up on. And by this means... Right? We then begin to see how the plan of God unfolds right? and how God is now um, bringing it to pass in his son. Uh, how do we determine these redemptive historical epochal uh, distinctions? Well, that's a major debate <laughs> in uh, biblical theology. Uh, everything's a major debate, but we have to propose something uh, so that uh, if you look first at Scripture, right, Scripture itself will divide itself up in various ways, right? Romans 5, Paul divides history under two heads, right? Adam and Christ, that's the, that's the zoom out lens or the zoom out look, right? Uh, that's the biggest sense. Adam, Christ governs all of scripture and then he further subdivides history between Adam to Moses, Moses to Christ. That's one way of structuring redemptive history or Acts 7, Stephen will speak about the patriarchs, the Mosaic Age, and the monarchy. It's a way of him, and then he then brings it home uh, to its fulfillment in Christ. Or Matthew 1, the genealogy. Uh, Graham Goldsworthy in his works famously appeals to Matthew 1, where you go from Abraham to David to David to 
Solomon to exile, exile to Christ, a way of structuring. Now, if you look at all the ways that the Bible does this, right, most of the ways are tied very closely to the unfolding of the covenants, right? And so our contention is, and this is what we're proposing here, is that uh, this is why the covenants are important. Uh, they then allow you to see how the plan unfolds. They allow you to say what comes before and after by then locating things where are you covenantally, right? Uh, does placing texts in their covenantal epochal context matter? Right? We could spend a lot of time, but I think if you look at a number of examples in the New Testament, uh, it does matter, right? Uh, New Testament reading of old is tied to, in many cases, not all cases, but in many cases where texts are located in the unfolding storyline, right? Romans 4 is a very, very important text of justification by grace through faith. Uh, there, Paul locates Genesis 15:6 prior to circumcision, and he makes very, very important points regarding what comes before and after. That's just in the life of Abraham. If you go to Galatians 3 and 4, a crucial covenantal text, uh, he argues against the Judaizers that the law is not an end. The Mosaic law is not an end in itself. It's a means to an end to bring us to Christ, uh, and so he lays that out in terms of ultimately before and after categories, right? So Paul argues that Jews and Gentiles are united to Christ by faith apart from the Mosaic law, Galatians 3, 1 through 6. He warrants his argument by appealing to Genesis 15, 6, the great justification text. True children of Abraham are all who have faith in Christ regardless of whether they are Jew or Gentile. Jew and Gentile now receive all the promised blessings of Abraham because of Christ, because he is Abraham's singular seed. This is Galatians 3.16. And God declares Abraham righteous long before. And the before is what's significant, before the law covenant. So that the Mosaic's law coming after Abraham did not nullify the previous promise, right? And so part of how he's putting these covenants together is they're building and you have to see what comes prior and what then comes after. And then eventually he argues that Jew and Gentile equally inherit the promises. Uh, believing Jews and Gentiles together are heirs. They receive the inheritance and so on, that which was promised to Abraham. And then you look at his quotation of seed comes right from Genesis 17, which uh, is tied to land promises and so on and so on. But Paul's then bringing it to now the new covenant and that which has now come in Christ. The book of Hebrews does this all over the place. Chapter 2, 3 and 4, 7, 8. It's been lots of time. So all this is simply saying the Bible itself reads itself in a certain way. And much of this is tied to where you are not only in redemptive history, but where you are covenantally located, right? The fourth uh, point that I have here in terms of assumption, and this is on uh, page two of your handout, is this in some sense brings these previous points together. So we draw theological conclusions from scripture by reading the entire canon in context. And I've already laid that out in terms of three contexts by unpacking the progression of the covenant. So all of scripture is for our instruction. Second right? Timothy 3, all of scripture is to be obeyed. Right? Uh, yet we must carefully read and apply it depending upon where we are in God's plan. So as we lay out the progression of the covenants, we're speaking primarily of six 
main covenants. There's all kinds of covenants in Scripture, but we're talking about the main covenants of creation. Noah, Abraham, Mosaic, old number of different names, Davidic, and new. And under this uh, fourth point here, I have, and I warned you, I have four sub-points about now just a Four hermeneutical observations about covenants, right? So all of this is saying we unified revelation, we're seeing uh, three horizons, progressive revelation, covenants are our proposal as to how we then structure redemptive history, and uh, now there's four points about covenants. First, um, we've already mentioned this, God's, the, the covenants, God's one eternal plan is unveiled through the plurality of covenants. So that's how you get at the one plan. The plan starts in creation. We'll come back to say a bit more about that. Two, the progression of the covenants is the primary means by which God's promises, right, his plan, his promises are ultimately brought to fulfillment. And the various, what we say here, and not everything is typological, but there's many typological patterns that are a feature of divine revelation that God gives us that move the plan forward and then reach fulfillment. So I say here the progression of the covenants is the primary means by which God's promises and typological patterns unfold and are fulfilled in Christ and, and we have to link these two together, and then his people. Right? It comes always first through him and then over to us as his new covenant people. Promised fulfillment is a major motif central to how scripture links itself together, right? How earlier uh, epochs are brought to pass in what's future, how future looks back to the past. One significant way, not the only way, but one significant way that promised fulfillment is developed, right, is through God-given patterns, and we call that typology. And so I make a very, very brief discussion because typology is highly debated and contentious, so you have to sort of lay out your, t- your, uh, your cards on the table, and this will be another point of difference uh, probably between Craig and I, but then I'll say, well, let's, let's see how, how these things work. Uh, but typology, I say, what do we mean by typology? Well, we're using typology in a very, very specific way. I give you Davidson, but it's not dependent upon Davidson totally. He did a whole study of uh, tupos uh, used in the New Testament. Then from there, started making conclusions. But this is, uh, Beale argues the same thing. Graham Cole argues the same thing. I mean, this is uh, pretty standard uh, by many in areas of topology that we're picking up. And so I give you some of the points of topology that I'm speaking of. Topology is symbolism rooted in history, but in the text. Right? Uh, it's in history, textual, a feature of divine revelation. Uh, there are persons, events, institutions, a nice way that are, are summarizing it, that are in history, in the text, that then point beyond themselves to something later. Right? That's the type to the anti-type. Uh, typology, secondly, is prophetic. It's predictive. It's not just seen in hindsight. We may come to understand it in terms of our knowledge in hindsight, but it is God-given. It's predictive in that sense. It's a subset of predictive prophecy, not in a direct verbal sense, but indirect. Models or patterns that God intends. How do we know what he intends it? You have to read the text and see how it gets unfolded and how later texts are picking up earlier texts and so on, right? There's exegetical clues in the immediate context. 
and then gets picked up later. There's the part of later sort of intertextual development. We may see in hindsight, but typology is there. It's not being read in. It's not sort of just an allegory. It's exegetically discovered so that we then begin to see the trajectories of where these patterns are going. How does typology work? Uh, I think there's at least a threefold character. There's a repetition of a person, event, institution, where is repeated in later persons, events, institutions, right? So you see it first, and then it gets picked up in a number of times, so you begin to see the pattern, right? Ultimately, we suggest that these patterns, uh, not everything is typology, but the key crucial typological patterns are brought to fulfillment first in Christ or in some relationship to him, right? and then are applied to his people. So you think of Adam as an example, is called in Romans 5.14 a, a type of Christ. He's the head of the old creation. Uh, God intends uh, for Adam to anticipate ultimately the last Adam, right? the head of the new creation. How do you know that? Right? Well, the immediate context presents in Genesis 1 to 3, Adam as having significance. He's not just the first man. He defines the human race. Sin comes from him and so on. A number of ways of speaking of this. And then other Adams, the idea of repetition, uh, show up through the covenants. Noah takes on an Adamic role. Uh, Abraham takes on that role. Israel takes on that role. David takes on that role. So these other Adams then are picking up the role of Adam which ultimately then reaches its culmination in Christ, who is last Adam, who restores us. Paul's treatment of this, you got Hebrews 2, uh, treatment of this. Psalm 8 is quoted. Christ is the one who brings uh, creation, Adam's role to fulfillment. Uh, and then he restores us. What, what are we restored to? Well, we're restored to pattern after his glorified humanity image and so on. We rule over because he has first done that in his own work and so on. Israel is a type of Christ, right? Israel is God's son, not only takes on Adam's role in the world through the covenants, but they anticipate ultimately the coming of a greater son, right? The true Israel, the true servant, the true vine, all of these are language that applies to Israel that gets picked up and applied to what Israel points forward to. Uh, so it's application to us, right? Christ comes and fulfills that entire role of Israel, and then we then, in relation to him, become God's eschatological people. Uh, we then become the true Israel through him. So the church is not the fulfillment of Israel in a direct way, but ultimately through Christ who fulfills that role so that we are the adopted sons through the Son, we are the Israel of God, and I take Galatians 6.16 as a reference to the church. Uh, we are Abraham's spiritual offspring, Galatians 3.29, restored to be what God created us to be. Uh, the whole promise of Jeremiah 31 to the house of Israel, house of Judah, not only speaks of a unified Israel, but eventually gets applied to the church. How does it do that? Well, I think it does that ultimately through the fulfillment in Christ. And typology then has this lesser to greater sense to it. 
as you get to the New Testament, as you get to fulfillment in Christ, he then uh, is far greater. So he's far greater than the prophets and priests and kings. He brings a greater exodus uh, and so on as you work in this a fortiori or lesser to greater sense of topology is important. It is the way, one of the ways the New Testament speaks of Christ's uniqueness. This isn't just a Moses. He is greater than Moses. He is also the Lord. Uh, he's not just another David. He is the one who eclipses David. He's a greater priest. And it also speaks of the newness of the new covenant era because fulfillment now has come. And a third feature of topology is that it works through, I think, the covenants. Try to think of the typological patterns that are not tried tied to the covenants. In fact, to reflect upon the development of the patterns is to walk through the covenants. For example, Adam, then gets picked up in Noah, Abraham, Israel, and so on. Uh, think of Abraham's seed gets picked up in uh, Abraham through Isaac, through the nation of Israel, through ultimately the Davidic king, culminating in the singular seed in Christ, or Moses, or priests, or temple, or David. All of this is tied to the covenantal unfolding. Right? So those are some, just some comments on typology. And then I come back to the third and fourth comment about covenants. Third, we don't uh, distinguish the covenants, categorize them purely in terms of unconditional, conditional. That's a very common way that people do that. Uh, in fact, we say they have elements of both. They have a strong unconditionality to them, not just Abrahamic, that's often identified, uh, or Davidic, or new, but all of them have a strong unilateral or unconditional sense because they're tied to God's promises. Right? God will unilaterally keep his promise. Uh, he will bring about his purposes. Yet, each of the covenants tied to Adam demand from us obedience. Right? There is a bilateral sense to them, and... Through the covenants, we try to argue that there is, in terms of the storyline of Scripture, a tension that unfolds. God will keep his promise, but he demands obedient covenant keepers. There is no obedient covenant keeper. Ultimately, God himself will keep his own promises, the covenant maker and keeper, by the provision of a greater son who obeys. And, of course, that moves us into the New Testament and then the work that gets applied uh, to us, right? And then we also argue in terms of the covenants that the new covenant is really the kind of fulfillment of the previous covenant. So those are some of the hermeneutical assumptions that we just sort of put out on the table. Those can be debated. There's where the discussion takes place. That's how we're reading scripture, being honest with what we're doing. And given now the progression of covenants that we say is so important to scripture, let me just sketch for a few moments and then think of how fulfillment works, uh, how the Bible is unfolding, right? So this is the third area, the biblical covenants from creation to the promise of the new covenant, and then the fourth, last area, we'll speak of how it gets to fulfilled in terms of the New Testament. Through covenantal progression, the larger truth of kingdom through covenant emerges. Right? Uh, kingdom is there automatically, even though the word's not there, it's tied right to creation. It's tied to Adam, it's tied to image, it's tied to rule. Uh, it's tied to covenant relationship of God to people to creation. 
right? Uh, through covenant, and we use the word through uh, in progressive covenantalism in two ways. The covenants themselves, um, uh, God brings his kingdom, he shows us, he's in relation to up, he shows what it means to be a holy people, what it means to be uh, rightly related to him and to one another. All the covenants teach that, yet through redemptive historically also means this is how he's unfolding his plan to lead to culmination in Christ. The Bible begins, obviously, sounds simple, but uh, begins with creation. And we argue that there is a creation covenant. We don't call it a covenant of works, even though there's elements of that that we have no problem with, except we just don't think it's robust enough. Uh, dispensational theology rarely talks about a covenant with creation, or at least it doesn't seem to factor into their theological system that much. It may serve as a backdrop in terms of the world, but really covenantal discussion doesn't begin back here. We tie it back here to Adam and to creation, right? We can make a strong case for the word covenant's not found in Genesis, and many people have dismissed it because the word is not there, but try to argue exegetically, contextually, all the way from the name of the Lord, Yahweh's in Genesis 2, the Lord vassal relationships, image, son, son is very much tied to image, imagery in scripture is all tied to covenant, tied to even Adam's role as priest is spoken of in terms of covenant relation. Then the canon seems to speak of Adam to Christ. How do you make sense of uh, how you put your Bible together without having Adam? Christ is the head of the new covenant, but what's Adam the head of if uh, Christ is the antitype of him? So it makes sense to speak of beginning with Adam and creation. Now, what's the significance of creation? Well, we say it's imperative that you start here for at least two reasons. First, the creation covenant is foundational to all the future covenants. Right? So our storyline is not beginning Noah or Abraham. It's beginning with Adam. Right? So that all the subsequent covenants unpack Adam's role in the world. Adam and all humanity is created as God's image son, the priest king to rule over creation. All subsequent covenants will function as subsets of Adam, who in God's plan point forward to ultimately the last Adam. Right? Even though the amount of space devoted to Adam is small, his role as a representative head of creation defines what comes after him and the entire work of Christ. Right? And secondly, the creation covenant is foundational for establishing various typological patterns. They begin in creation. Right? Uh, they eventually reach their fulfillment in Christ in the new covenant. The rest of the Sabbath, uh, the seventh day, God rests. That becomes a major theme that runs through Sabbath days, ultimately fulfillment in Christ. Eden as a temple sanctuary. Uh, marriage, uh, the role of uh, what it means to be image and so on. All of these things are there. The issues of land, creation are all tied all these patterns there in creation will eventually move forward. It's not accidental that the end of the Bible looks a lot like the first part of the Bible uh, in Revelation 21 and 22, yet greater. Right? And one last point, the covenant of creation cannot be discussed without mentioning, obviously, sin's entrance into the world and God's first redemptive promise. Right? Sin is now the problem. Right? God's promise is that through the human race, Right? Through another Adam, right? through the seed of the woman, uh, there will come deliverance. Right? But this creates 
tension. How does God remain the covenant God of his people in light of sin? Uh, how does he remain just and ultimately the justifier of the ungodly, to use the language of the Apostle Paul? And Scripture's answer through the covenants is that God himself must save. Right? He must save uh, through the provision ultimately of a greater Adam, one who will come from the seed of the woman, a seed theme, and then it gets unpacked through the biblical covenants. The Noahic covenant is Adamic. It's universal. It's creation. It's God's commitment to the creation project, image, sons, priests, and all that. Uh, it continues to the end of the age. Noah is another Adam, and he's the means by which the seed will come. It's universal scope. God's scope is always in that and eventually it, it will show up in every tribe nation people and tongue sin remains uh, as evidenced with noah he's not the promised one yet the edemic role will continue and the noahic covenant allows for why there is now both the kingdom of man the kingdom of god simultaneously existing there's a lot of implications for that that even grounds inaugurated eschatology in the new testament the abrahamic covenant given its location in scripture Right, stands in contrast to the judgments of human sin. It's set over against Genesis 1 to 11, particularly 3 through 11. Chapter 10 and 11 are inverted very deliberately. Uh, Abraham is God's way of bringing about his promises starting in Genesis 3.15. Uh, Abraham is Adamic in many ways. He's promised a great name and seed. Multiplication of human beings, provision of land, peaceful relationship between God and humanity, restoration of nations, right? And God is going to raise up Abraham and his seed to become a mighty nation, boy, a world community, a kingdom. It's all kingdom language. So that God's intent is to work through him to bring blessing to the world, right? It's best to view the Abrahamic covenant as the means by which God will fulfill his promises for humanity, that's in the context of he is another Adam he is to use Paul's language right I mean he's really uh, brought as a kind of new creation in Romans 4 17 the Abrahamic covenant is a subset of the covenant with creation Abrahamic seed first in Isaac and then Israel and the Davidic king ultimately culminates in Christ Abraham's true seed with the Abrahamic narrative right there's hints even that It'll be fulfilled through, yes, the nation of Israel, but also a singular seed. Even in Genesis 22, there is the singular used of this unique one from Abraham who will possess the gates of the enemies, expanding borders, having a universal kind of rule. And this makes perfect sense if we tie the Abrahamic covenant back to creation. The Old Covenant, uh, lots of space in Scripture that's given to it, uh, yet Scripture teaches that it is not an end in itself, that was the Judaizer problem, it's part of God's progression, it's a means to a larger end, it's temporary, it serves a whole number of purposes, but in the end, with the coming of Christ, it is now, as a covenant, brought to fulfillment, it increases sin, it shows uh, the failure of the nation a number of ways, it shows his grace, it does a number of things, but it builds on the Abrahamic promises, it reveals how Abraham's seed is the nation of Israel. Through them, this mighty nation, God will bring about his promises. Right? It teaches them about covenant relations. It does a number of things. They are God's son, which is very, very significant. Exodus 4, which harkens back 
to Adam and ultimately leads to eventually the Davidic kings. Israel as a nation is a son priest, right? They are a kingdom of priests, right, who are to be Adamic. Kingdom of priests language really is tied back to Adam as priest and what we are to be as image bearers. Yet secondly, in terms of some of the significance of Old Covenant, it's, it's an entire package that has all kinds of development of typological patterns in it. Israel's a kingdom of priests, but they need a priest. It's very interesting. They are a kingdom of priests, but they need someone to stand on their behalf and represent God, the Levitical priesthood. Uh, Hebrews ultimately argues the Levitical priesthood is the foundation of the entire Old Covenant. You can't have holiness of God and sin without the priest. So there are a kingdom of priests that needs priests. The tabernacle, temple, sacrificial system is unpacked. Uh, the role of prophet, the anticipation of king that runs through the Old Covenant, Passover, Exodus, and so on. I mean, these are all patterns that the Old Covenant, so the Old Covenant isn't just, you know, the Ten Commandments or so. It's a whole package that is moving God's plan through Israel. God will bring about the promises to Abraham, ultimately the promise all the way back to Genesis 3.15. The Davidic Covenant is the epitome. Uh, I think of the Old Testament covenants. God's promise is to establish David's house forever. And the relationship of the Lord to the king is that of father and son, which is very, very significant. The meaning of his sonship ties the Davidic king back to Israel in the king. He represents Israel. Right? He is true Israel in himself. In some sense, you have corporate Israel, but you also have the Davidic king as the individual Israel. Uh, you also anticipate the future in terms of a greater Davidic king, greater son, greater Israel that gets unpacked in terms of Christ. So that we move from Adam to corporate Israel to now an individual. The Daniel 7 passage of the Son of Man has this one who comes in the clouds of heaven who stands for the entire nation, right? The servant of the Lord passages. You know, sometimes they're Israel, but they ultimately get epitomized in the Davidic king. The Davidic covenant allows that to be possible. Uh, not surprising if we link the covenants together, the Davidic king will ultimately, Second Samuel 7, David sees himself as uh, providing the instruction Torah for humanity so that the Davidic king will in the promises and then get picking up, picked up in the Psalter and in the prophets will rule the world. But the problem is the Davidic kings do none, nothing of the sort, right? So that uh, they ultimately divide in terms of the nation after Solomon. There is no faithful son. Uh, how will God keep his promises? And this sets the context for the arrival of the new covenant promise, right? The new covenant promise covenantally located is uh, in the writing prophets post-Davidic, right? So that all the previous covenant structures and plan and storyline is now reaching the prophets who now look to the future, who bring covenant curses upon the nation. You violated the covenant, but they also give hope. And the hope is bound up with Yahweh who saves. He will come and rescue, but he always comes and rescues through the king. Right? Through another David, all of God's promises of restoration come through this king. So in this king, identified as a servant of the Lord, he will bring a new covenant. He will bring the pouring out of the spirit. He will bring the saving reign among the nations. He will most significantly bring the full forgiveness of sins, which is the main problem. 
right? He will bring the new creation. So you work through Isaiah, the other prophets, the Psalter. The Psalter is full of this as a unified book that's laying out the coming of the great king. And the new covenant within the Old Testament has national. It will be to the house of Israel, house of Judah, speaking of a unified Israel. Yet it also has international aspects of it, Gentile inclusion, whether it's Isaiah 14, 19, 40. I mean, so it's not just, could be Gentiles alongside Israel, but no, it seems, especially as you work it out through scripture, they will become the one people together. Um, uh, Its scope is universal. It's tied to a new heavens, a new earth. The newness of the new covenant speaks of a transformed people tied to this covenant mediator who will know the Lord, who will have the spirit, who will... Uh, not disobey, but obey, and they will have the full forgiveness of sins, right? And this is what ultimately the prophets look forward to. Now, that brings us to the last area of fulfillment, right? That's sort of how the covenants are moving forward. The prophets, as they look to the future, the New Testament makes very clear that all of this anticipation first finds its fulfillment in Christ, right? So New Testament Christology, right, uh, cannot be understood apart from all of the patterns and structures and uh, so on from the Old Testament. Uh, In Christ, the restoration of Israel is occurring through him. He is Abraham's seed. Uh, He is the promised one all the way back to Genesis 3.15. He is the son who is also the Lord. And then you have Matthew's gospel that lays that out from the genealogy. The virgin conception, even in prophetic anticipation, is the beginning of the new creation in himself. The whole presentation of that conception is the new age is dawned. Uh, You shall call his name Jesus. He'll save his people from their sins. That's all all Jeremiah 31 uh, language. Hosea 11.1 is fulfilled in Jesus' exile and calling out of Egypt. His baptism. Baptism, his temptation, his calling of the twelve, the new community. He's the one who's bringing the promises to pass. John's gospel, Matthew, Mark, all of them. The whole New Testament sees fulfillment in Christ. That fulfillment now comes to us, and this becomes the importance of inaugurated eschatology. How does Christ fulfill the promises? How does he fulfill the covenants? Well, in our great eschatology, right, he has now brought the new creation, the future age to pass. It's already here, yet there's still more to come. First coming, second coming. I think that's something that the Old Testament doesn't clearly delineate. I think that's tied to the New Testament. Uh, how does inaugurate eschatology work? Well, I think it's building off of the prophets. The prophets from the Old Testament, I would contend, look to the future in terms of a package, right? They look to the future when the Lord and the King come, the new covenant age dawns, what will come? Well, God's rule and reign will finally come in and defeat God's enemies. The spirit will be poured out. The temple will be, you know, the dwelling of God and tied to the temple, Ezekiel imagery uh, that's there. True worship, true uh, bringing the end of a greater priest, the end of sacrifice, the coming of the king, the coming of judgment, the coming of rest, the coming of resurrection, the coming of new creation, a restored Israel. I mean, all of that is part of the prophetic hope And the New Testament says that's already here. In some principled form, that is already here, yet it still awaits its consummation. It's not just spiritually here. It's here, 
more than that, and there's still more to come. Uh, Christ inaugurates it. It's appropriated by the church, right? We now receive the beneficiaries, and then we will have consummation of it in the end. Think of Jeremiah 31. The knowledge of God now is here, yet we'll have greater knowledge. We are forgiven of our sins now, yet we will stand before a judgment seat of, of Christ, and the public vindication will be there. We have the Spirit, yet the Spirit is first fruits. Think of the new creation. You say, well, the new creation obviously is future. Well, that's true, but it's first now here in Christ. Right? It's first now here in his incarnation, his resurrection. Right? That's sniff of these things. The new creation is here. He's the first man of the new creation. His resurrection is now the new creation in him. We now, as his people, are new creation, but we await the place. Right? But still, the new creation is now here, even though we await uh, the end. Uh, so when you have the promises of the Old Testament applied to us, Think of Jeremiah 31, to the house of Israel, the house of Judah. It's not just sort of spiritually applied to the church and then literally now to Israel in the future as a nation uh, different than other Gentile nations. No, it's now to the new man in Christ who now produces as people. And this is why as we move to the notion of the church, the church here now in Christ takes on the promises from the Old Testament. They are the people of the new covenant. They are the people of the new creation. They are the new man, right? Ephesians 2 is very significant. So Ephesians 2, the church is not merely an illustration for this present time of that which has the spirit, which then gives way to larger nations. Well, no, every tribe, people, nation is part of the church, right? No one loses their maleness, femaleness, distinction, so on, but they're part of the one people, this new man who has the same inheritance, the same promises in Christ. Uh, and Ephesians 2 lays that out. And so this now is the people of the future now presently living here. Uh, and that people does not sort of just merely function as a kind of, of illustration. Or First Peter 2, the church now takes on the language of Israel. It now is this holy nation. It now is this kingdom of priests. We're restored in Christ to what Israel was supposed to be, ultimately what Adam was supposed to be. And as you see the fulfillment take place in the New Testament, right? you begin to see uh, the restoration promises of Israel from the Old Testament being brought first to Christ, to then the Jewish reunification, right? Think, thinking of Acts 1 at this point in the book of Acts, Acts 2 primarily is Jew-Gentile or, or, or reunification, Jude, Judah and Israel coming together at Pentecost uh, to the Samaritans, uh, Acts 10 to the Gentiles, the new man is being created, but all of the promises, the Joel 2 promise is now applied at Pentecost. Right, uh, You will be my witnesses. They're asked in Acts 1, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And we don't say, well, he's just saying, well, just you know, wait till the future, we'll do that. Uh, or rebuking them for asking that. His answer is, is that's now beginning now. Right? It's begun in him. It's being restored now by the giving of the Spirit, where you have a reunified Israel in terms of the church, Acts 2, which then expands to the, Gent the Samaritans, then to the Gentiles, so that the Holy Spirit is coming upon you. You will be my witnesses, language taken from Isaiah 32, 43, 49, and so on. So through the servant, 
Israel's restoration, the inclusion of the Gentiles is the creation of his people, his church, his ecclesia, the one new man that's tied to him, who is the last Adam, true Israel, David, and so on, right? And so the church then, as you look at the language of it in the New Testament, picks up language of Israel over and over again. Uh, this is confirmed, uh, the same language of beloved and elect and Abraham's seed and circumcised Jews and so on. The restoration promises of Amos 9, Joel 2, Isaiah and Jeremiah 31 is a restoration promise gets applied to the church. Well, how? Not because they just replace Israel, because they are those who are united to the one who comes and brings all of God's promises to pass in himself. The final vision of the Bible in Revelation 21 and 22 is of a new heavens and new earth, right? And I take Revelation 21 and 22, this new heavens and new earth, there's a number of images that are given, right? It's a new heavens and new earth, it's a new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, right? That ties in the New Testament, to, even the Old Testament, to the people of God, the Jerusalem is a bride, right, tied to the new covenant. It's a dwelling imagery, and I take the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and new earth is coextensive with one another. The entire new heavens and new earth is the cube, the perfect cube, the holy of holies where God dwells. There's no temple in that place because the Lord and the Lamb are the temple. Uh, people from every tribe, nation, people, and tongue, God's people equally inherit the entire creation. Right? So we don't divide up in our view here. You can have ethnic distinctions, but it's not as if there's something distinct for a certain nation, particularly Israel versus other nations. No, they receive the same inheritance in Christ. So there's one people, the foundation of that people are the apostles and the tribes. They're one people of God, 2114 and so on, uh, and people from every tribe, nation, people, and tongue. And I think that's how scripture is moving forward how it starts in creation and ultimately ends in new creation through the covenants, unpacked through ultimately the fulfillment that comes in Christ over to his people. So the glorious future that we now already, in some sense, uh, we are the new creation as his people, but in the fullness of that, the full place will be made for us where we will dwell and the church is now an international people. Uh, it's universal people that go back ultimately to what God created us as people made in his image, uh, his elect from every tribe, nation, people, and tongue. So the conclusion here is that God's kingdom plan through the covenants, starting in creation to consummation, is the grand meta-narrative, right? At the center of everything is obviously the triune God in the face of Christ, his son, Messiah Jesus, right, who comes from, you know, he takes on our humanity to redeem us, to represent us. He is the son from eternity who becomes the son in terms of his humanity. He is the one who becomes incarnate to restore, to bring all of God's promises to pass in and of himself. And we as his people, the church, are the beneficiaries remade after him uh, to be a people now that is living ourself out, our existence now and ultimately for all Eternity. Well, that's progressive covenantalism, right? In a nutshell, uh, trying to say how we think you move in terms of Old Testament to New through the covenants, through the prophets, how fulfillment comes, and then 
Um, we think we do justice to the text, the parts, in terms of that whole, but then we can talk about how various texts fit into that whole, Romans 9 to 11. I'm sure we can have a discussion on that as well. Uh, the, there's different ways that you can take that passage, but there's nothing in it that speaks of Israel as a nation with dis something distinct or different than Gentile nations. We would see all of those promises to Israel and to his people from the nations coming together in Christ and in the church, right? So that's how we would see it, but you will hear a slightly different, uh, maybe a lot different uh, view. We'll see how he presents it um, uh, on that. So, 